it took us 17 hours and we the research station where we usually stay was closed and so we were all living in different little cabins so that we wouldn't infect each other all of that was a huge hassle but it was a great year for ants The ants are going to show us many different ways of dealing with change because they have already evolved to fit their collective behavior to different kinds of environmental change in different habitats. Welcome to the Earth Ideas podcast. Interviews with academics, scientists and journalists about their areas of research. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, well let's let's get into it then. Thank you so much Deborah for joining me. Um when we first spoke actually, um you were about to go off on a trip and I had a thought in my head like of all the researchers and people that I've spoken to for this, I think you're the only person who's managed to escape in the last few months and actually go away and do some research somewhere. So how was that for you? It was great. Um, logistically, it was really complicated. We drove there and it was like that movie where Matt Damon is on Mars and he's got two weeks to make his own water and so on. I mean, right. we went through, um, at one point it was 119 degrees and it was, um, I don't know what that is in centigrade, but it's really hot. It's like in the f low fifties, I guess. You know, you open the car door at a rest stop and you think you can't survive in this heat. It was really crushing and um, it took us 17 hours and we, the research station where we usually stay was closed and so we had to stay in a vacation rental cabins and cook. So I had really never fully appreciated how much difference it makes when you're doing field work to have somebody else do the cooking. Mm. Um, because that's just a lot of work to get the food and make it and clean up and and we were all living in different places so that sort of different little cabins so that we wouldn't infect each other and then we met outside to eat and um, uh, all of that was a huge hassle but mm. it was a great year for ants and the site which has been very dry over the last few years. Um, it rained this winter, last winter, and everything was in flower, and there were zillions of new colonies, which is very encouraging, and um, so it was a great year for ants, and I'm really glad that I went. If I hadn't, if I had missed a year, I do a census every year, and all of these new colonies would have popped up, and I wouldn't have known which year they started. So it's really great that we went, and we actually managed to get some other things done, um, I didn't have, usually I go with a group of students, but um, uh, Stanford, where I work, would not allow uh, students to travel, and so I had uh, a group of volunteers, and they were great, and we, we did it. So it was, um, everything around it was a huge hassle, but the actual work was great. So, and so it was really good to get out, just to get out of the house and go someplace else, you know, I... <laughs> forgotten how how one does that um, and um, so it seemed like such a huge 
thing to go be someplace else. And um, uh, it, it was great. I'm very glad that we went. Yeah, you were saying tracking it year to year and 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 tied to the weather. I mean, is this is this sort of is this got anything to do with understanding how they're responding to the changes in climate down there? Yes. So uh, drought um, began in the whole Southwest in around uh, 2000 2003, and we thought of it as a drought, and we thought of it as something that would end. Mm-hmm. And as it has continued and deepened, it's become clear that we can't really think of it as a temporary blip, but a, a long-term change that may even get worse. So it's become hotter and drier. And I've been tracking this population of colonies now since 1988. And I uh, go there every year and... Um, I find all the colonies that were there the year before and um, say goodbye to the ones that have died and put the new ones on the map. And because of this long-term census, I've learned that the colonies can live for 20 or 30 years. So it's like a a forest um, where the older, larger colonies uh, become established and whether new young ones can become established depends on where they're situated relative to the older ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they are um, competing for just space in which to look for seeds. They eat seeds and the seeds are mostly scattered by the wind and by flooding when it does rain. And so it's not that they each colony owns a little bit of real estate with seeds locally produced, but instead they're all looking for the seeds that are just scattered. And so any colony um, needs space in which to look for seeds. And so the way that the um, population changes over time depends on uh, these relations among neighboring colonies. So by keeping track of the the colonies year after year, I can see where they all are and how they grow and survive. And what's happened in, it's become most apparent in the last uh, five or six years that as it's become drier, the food production has probably changed because of course the plants that make the seeds need water to grow. Mm -hmm. And the population has been declining. So there have been fewer new colonies and the colonies that are there have been dying younger. And so I've been very worried about the population over time in response to the drought. And it was very encouraging this year to see a lot of new colonies because there was rain this past winter. I mean, are you having to take into account ants adapting to the drought and and things like that? I mean, is it is it that it, they will only get better and and survive if the climate does, or or do you think that there's a chance that if it was to continue this way, they'd find a way around it? Well, I am seeing a signal of natural selection shaping their collective behavior in response to drought. So they regulate how much they forage in relation to how dry the air is. 
an ant loses water by being outside in the sun searching for seeds. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they get their water by metabolizing the fats in the seeds that they eat. Mm -hmm. So they have to spend water to get water. They have to go out, lose water being out in the sun in order to get food and water. Mm -hmm. And a colony manages this trade-off. Well, a, a colony operates without any central control, and no ant understands the trade-off between spending water and getting water. But collectively, they manage this trade-off by using interactions inside the nest to regulate how much they forage. So an outgoing forager doesn't leave the nest until it meets enough ants returning with food. That's a kind of positive feedback. So every ant goes out and searches around and it doesn't come back until it finds a seed. So the more food there is out there, the faster they come back. So for each ant inside the nest, the rate at which ants are coming back is associated or correlated with how much food there is out there. And of course the ant doesn't know anything about that Mm-hmm. But it uses the rate at which it meets ants coming in with food to decide whether to leave the nest. But that decision also depends on how hot it was on its last trip. So as the humidity decreases, each ant becomes a little more reluctant to leave, uh-huh. even if ants are coming in with food. And this plays out every day within the day. They come out early in the morning when humidity is a little bit higher. And as it gets hotter and hotter in the summer in the desert, it gets quite hot and dry by the middle of the day. Mm -hmm. And the foragers are less likely to go out and eventually they shut down in the middle of the day. So each ant is using the rate of interaction with other ants and its assessment of humidity Uh to decide whether to leave the nest. So that's true of all colonies. Now, colonies differ in how they do this, Uh so not all colonies are the same. And some colonies are more likely than others to slow down foraging when it's really dry. Mm -hmm. So they they store food inside the nest. It's not like birds that have to go out and eat or they'll die right then. You know, a hummingbird is at the other end of the spectrum from a harvester ant colony. A hummingbird has to eat to maintain its metabolism. And if it doesn't eat enough, it could just die. A harvester ant colony stores food like we store food and fat. They store seeds inside the nest. So they they can store their seeds for a long time. Mm -hmm. So every day a colony is making a decision about how much it's worth it to forage today. How much water can we afford to lose for the amount of food that's available? And so like a hummingbird is always living at the end of its bank account sort of thing. It's going, 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 going. And colonies are sort of like, they're much more spread out and they have this sort of like, they have a big reserve um, across the whole colony. That's right. Right. So of course, how much of a reserve they have depends on how good things were before and whether there was a time when conditions were right and food was available and they were able to get a lot of food and store it. Mm. So colonies differ in how they manage this trade-off. And there are some colonies that seem very enterprising and stoic and go out no matter what. 
And there are other colonies that when it is dry, they cut back on their foraging. So they sacrifice their food intake, but they conserve water. Mm-hmm. And what we found is that it's actually the colonies that do that that are having more offspring colonies. So I called the paper that uh, I published on this the rewards of restraint because it's the ones that sacrifice food intake to conserve water that are doing better. And it may be that in these drought conditions, natural selection is shaping colony behavior so as to restrict foraging so that they can conserve water better. Wow. So that will take a while. It doesn't happen quickly because mm-hmm. natural selection, the the rate of natural selection is completely dependent on generation time. Mm-hmm. And you so, said that colonies can go for 20 years or more. A colony can live for 20 or 30 years and a colony begins to reproduce when it's five. Okay. So the generation time is about five years. So it will take natural selection a long time to push the population towards a, um, it'll, it'll take natural selection a long time, uh, to change the proportion of colonies that are conserving water in this way. But we may find that as these climates get hotter and drier, ant colonies are more conservative and smaller in general. I don't know if they'll be smaller, but that would not be surprising. I don't know about that, but Mm. I can see that there are differences in behavior. And we've learned that these differences in behavior in how they regulate foraging in response to humidity are associated with dopamine. So there are differences among colonies in their neurophysiology that are associated with how they respond to humidity. So dopamine is a neurotransmitter that we associate with reward. Mm. Um, In mammals, it's related to addiction because it's the, um, the dopamine neurophysiology is related to how, um, bad you feel when you don't get a drug you're addicted to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we've found in experiments that um, giving ants dopamine makes them more likely to forage. And it's associated with water loss in a slightly complicated way, but it actually makes sense. So colonies seem to differ also in their water physiology. So some colonies, in some colonies, the ants are more prone to lose water than in others. So it might be something about the way that their um, cuticle, the, the outer shell is permeable to water. And the colonies that are most sensitive to water loss are the ones that are likely to reduce foraging when it's dry. It's as though those ants feel worse when they go out in the hot sun and they come back, they feel a little bit worse because they've lost a little bit more water. And maybe they're a little bit more reluctant to go back out because they're just more sensitive to water loss. Mm -hmm. And it's those colonies that respond most to dopamine. So if you give them dopamine, you override that relationship between how dry they are and not wanting to go out. 
Now, I'm using language like wanting to go out, but I don't think that the ant really says to itself, I just right. don't feel like it today. It's too <laughs> awful out there. Um, but that's kind of like this. It's, I mean, it's nothing like with us, but if you wanted to compare it, it would be how some days you just wake up feeling a little bit crap and you don't know why. And something's telling you just, just chillax today. Ants having the same thing. And if you give them more of a sort of neuro, I don't know what the word would be, but an incentive to go out and they feel like that could make them feel better, which is what you're doing with dopamine, then you can see that that's, that's the gap between colonies that are more risk-taking and colonies that are more conservative. Yes, I don't think that the dopamine itself is an incentive, but I think that the dopamine is related to the decision about whether it's okay to go out. Right. So I don't think that the ant is, I don't think that the ant is seeking a reward, mm -hmm. but rather that it feels less averse to facing a dry environment. Actually, I think that the same thing happens with addiction and, you know, I'm not an expert on this, but um, it seems that there's recent work, um, partly by a, a colleague of mine, Shaka Chen, uh, suggesting that really addiction happens not because the drug feels good, but because not having the drug feels so bad. Right. Yes. So it's a slight, it's the same thing, but it's flipped around. Um, so that it's not so much that the ant feels that getting a seed would be really great, but that it feels less bad right. about having to go out in the that sun. That makes sense. When, I wanted to ask you, when, um, when was it first learned that there's no central control in an ant colony and how was how that discovered? I think people who have been watching ants have known it for a long time. There's uh, one of the proverbs that um, people have, uh, one of the proverbs people are more familiar with the beginning of it, look to the ant thou sluggard, so it's sometimes used as a, you know, uh, invoking people to be industrious like ants, uh -huh. which uh, isn't really the way ants are actually. But it says, look to the ant thou sluggard, who having no chief or ruler or overseer, gathers the food in the summer to sustain the colony in the winter. So that's a paraphrase, but the but. The important part is that it says having no chief or overseer or ruler. So somebody back then, whenever that proverb was written, it's in the Old Testament, what? knew that ant colonies have no central control. And it was really only in the um, uh, 16th century that um, in relation to a lot of uh, unrest in England and the uh, turmoil around uh the execution of a king and the restoration of the monarchy that somebody named the uh, Charles Butler named uh, the honeybee reproductive female, the queen, and mm. really wanted to make this analogy between a queen in a honeybee colony and a queen in humans that everybody would be um, loyal to the queen and take care of her and so on. Mm -hmm. And uh, that idea of the, the colony having a queen actually, um, I don't think has been around forever. So right, right. really, we um, invented this notion of the 
the bee colony or the ant colony as a hierarchical organization with the queen in power. And it's always very interesting to me in movies um, and stories about ants, how people want to imagine it as having somebody in charge. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the movie Ants, there's a queen. Yeah. uh, But then there are all these... There are all these male bureaucrats and generals who are in charge of everything, so she doesn't really tell anybody what to do exactly, but she's the queen, sort of like um, the monarchy in England. Yeah, you know, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, then there are all these men who, who decide everything. Um, in fact, in an ant colony, uh, unlike in a bee colony, the males are, are only around for a few weeks out of the year to mate. Mm-hmm. So the whole colony is female um, most of the time. And a queen, is she, she seems less revered and, and, you know, um, loved and adored, but more just kind of like a, a baby making machine. Yes. She just lays the eggs. So if you think of the whole colony as a, as an animal, she's the ovaries, she lays the eggs and they have to feed her and take care of her or they would have no more, um, they'd have no more ants, mm. but mm in the same way that you have to take care of your ovaries or you can't reproduce. I mean, it's, it's not that they feel, you know, it's not that they feel some loyalty to her. Mm. I've been interested to hear recently that there's a group on Facebook. Um, Have you heard about this? That um, all the members uh, have ant names and they repeat their loyalty to the queen. And um, I think it's really interesting that so many people are, keen to do this and that the way that they've chosen to represent themselves as ants involves a lot of um, uh, expressions of fealty and loyalty to a queen um, Mm. because ants don't really do that. What happens in an ant colony if the queen was to get hurt or get sick? Does that happen? Yes. If the queen dies then, for example, in a harvester ant colony, if the queen dies, then there is nobody to make more ants and they don't adopt another queen or anything. And then the colony will die once all the workers have died. Oh, really? Oh, right. So you can't replace the queen, even though she's not, you know, there's no connection to her. There's no, you know, like that. It's, but you can't replace her. Well, it's important to remember that there's 14,000 species of ants. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, and of the 14,000 species of ants, maybe 50 have ever been studied in detail. Mm. So we say things about ants in general, and we don't really know because there are so many kinds of ants that nobody has really studied. But in the ants that we have studied, for example, in the harvester ants, if the queen dies, then eventually the colony will die. Now, how, the how? workers live a year. The queen can live for 20 or 30 years. So it takes a while for the colony to die because the workers are still there and they carry on as mm-hmm. usual until they die. It's different once the queen has died because there are no more um, larvae to feed so they don't forage as much, so they kind of dwindle away. Right. Oh, like a slow sort of 
weeping death. How so? 50, 50, colon, 50 different species have been studied um, in depth. I mean, how much do, the, do they differ? Does it give you an idea of how different colonies function across 14,000 species? Or is it are there patterns that we can see already in those 50 or so? All ant species that we know of have in common that they live in colonies. So that's true of all ants. Mm-hmm. And a colony consists of one or more reproductive females that we call queens, even though they don't have any power mm-hmm. or authority. And then all of the ants that you see walking around are sterile female workers. And a colony produces other colonies through some kind of mating aggregation that involves the reproductives of different colonies. So Ants don't make more ants, colonies make more colonies. And many species of ants do this through a mating flight or mating aggregation. So they produce daughter queens who are not mated and males. And at a certain time, and it's an interesting process how that gets decided, all of the colonies in a population let out their winged ants. And you may have seen winged ants flying Mm -hmm. around. So often it's after a rain when the ground is soft for digging. So the winged females and winged males of many different colonies meet and they mate and then the males die. And then the newly mated queens go off and start new colonies. So a queen that has her wings still either hasn't mated yet or she's just mated but after they mate they drop their wings and do what they need to do to make a nest so the harvester ants dig in the ground the queens dig in the ground and start a new nest Um, other species of ants go in different places there are ants that nest everywhere and they do this on their own the queen just the queen does this on her own she'll just yeah right okay i'm ready Yeah, in a harvester ant colony, a newly mated queen flies off somewhere at random from the aggregation site where she mated, and she digs a hole. It's about uh, 10 centimeters deep, and she'll stay in there for the rest of her life for 20 to 30 years. And she uses the sperm from that original mating to go on producing all of the ants in the colony year after year. So she stores the sperm for a long time. And it's a really interesting question how she manages to keep the sperm alive. Yeah. How does that work? Nobody really knows. Many female insects have a kind of a sperm storage tunnel uh, tube called a spermatheca. And that's where the sperm live. And then they are somehow um, summoned to fertilize the eggs over time and um that's a very interesting process that we actually don't know that much about and something that i mean bees and wasps do it a similar way i I don't know if for quite so long right but i I believe that bees also can do it for a few years they'll just have a sort of bank that they they get and then they they take from that throughout their lifetime but that seems like something that must have in across evolution stayed there because no, in most other species, right, it's um, 
this, uh, only the sperm that reaches the other half of where it needs to go survives, right? Well, in many kinds of insects, not just in the social insects, the females can store sperm for a long time. Really? They might not be living in a colony, um, but but this uh, spermatheca is uh, widespread across insects, not just in in bees and wasps. Now, uh, honeybees um, have a particular uh, kind of organization that's like that of ants, but they've been selected by us for 10,000 years. So we've had a lot of intervention in the in everything about the ways that um, in the biology of honeybees. Mm -hmm. uh, there are all kinds of wasps and some of them form colonies and some don't. So what's characteristic of the ants, which evolved from a, um, a wasp ancestor, is that they are all they all have in common that they live in colonies. So that's what's true of all the ants. But you asked whether the ants are different. And the answer is yes, there's an amazing diversity in not just where they live and what they eat and how long they live and what kinds of colonies they make. And uh, there's a range from colonies of 30 ants to um, millions of ants. So there's a huge range of uh, how they live. And what's most interesting to me is that is reflected in the processes that regulate how they work together. So we see correspondences between how they operate collectively and the kinds of conditions in which they live. So the harvester ants are an example. They live in a really kind of stable environment, not much changes. The seeds are on the ground and if they don't get them. They sit there unless somebody else gets them. Mm -hmm. So they have a system that regulates their foraging in response to something that changes fairly slowly. That's the humidity in the air. Mm -hmm. And they don't have a very rapid system for uh, recruiting to food and finding new things and so on. So you could contrast a species like that where they've evolved a slow and stable process of uh, interactions inside the nest that regulates their foraging with the kinds of ants that you meet on your kitchen counter that are an invasive species. And it seems like you drop a crumb one second and a minute later, the ants are there. <laughs> they have evolved ways of uh, acting and um, responding to each other quite quickly that lead to a very rapid collective response. So we can see across the species of ants a correspondence between the kinds of conditions they live in and how they change and the way that they regulate their behavior. So I think that ants are a great opportunity to look at how collective behavior evolves differently in different kinds of environments. Yeah, it's it's amazing their spread and their reach and their diversity. I mean, if you if you, I suppose if you give an animal... Uh, that many uh, years to, to sort of change and evolve in all these different places. It's going to show you some very weird and wonderful things. A lot of what your lab is looking at is um, the sort of different ways um, they 
they collaborate and they work with each other, right? To to sort of extrapolate lessons from them that we can use, I believe. Yes, they work together and we're interested in how they coordinate their behavior and work collect and we're interested in how they work collectively. You could think of it as collaboration, but of course they're not agreeing on what the goal is. They are working in such a way that has the outcome that the colony accomplishes things. So the layer that is different, so when you compare ants and humans, you have to remember that for humans, our intentions are really important. While for ants, they're able to work collectively without really intending to or thinking about it. So really, it's not really fair to talk about ants. It's more, it's the colony. That's that's the living thing. It's it, it's that's the the being is the colony. That the ant on its own is sort of like our cells, for example. It's what makes yes. up the whole. Yes, an ant is never operating on its own, just as a cell is not operating on its own. But it is the ants that do the things that create the behavior of the colony. So you always have to think about both. And that's the question. So the most interesting question is, how is it that for the ant, using only very simple local interactions in the aggregate produces the behavior of the colony? Because the colony just is the ants, but... Of course, it does things that no ant could understand or cause to happen. In that way, it's really no different from any other natural system. You can say the same about your brain. You know, your neurons don't know what to do, but somehow in the aggregate, the action of different neurons creates thinking and memory and talking and all the great things that brains do. But it isn't because the neurons are exactly collaborating. It's because that's how it works. And any natural system really is like that. So although ants give us great examples of collective behavior and allow us to see this relationship between what the ants are doing and what the colony is doing, the same kind of collective behavior is happening in every natural system. It's just a little harder to see. It's like they're, they all have their instruction for what they have to do. And I mean, do we, do you, are you working on, does anybody have any idea how, how it could be? I mean, I'm guessing that people are trying to understand whether ants learn as they live or whether it's all kind of born as instinct. I think that trying to sort that out leads us round and round in circles and that we need to find some other way to think about it. The ant doesn't really have instructions. It has responses. Mm -hmm. It responds to its encounters with the world and with other ants in certain ways that are predictable, but not completely determined. So there's a lot of uh, randomness in it. It's not as if every ant always does the same thing in the same situation. That's also true of your neurons, right? Um, So you don't actually have uh, uh, little machines in there that always um, do exactly what they're told by some 
program behind them. I think in the uh, systems that we make, in engineered systems, we like to think that we control everything, but more and more, even in the systems that we make, we're having to draw on randomness to help regulate how it works. So it's not exactly that the ant has a little uh, book in there with instructions that tell it what to do. It has um, a tendency to respond to certain kinds of change by changing its behavior. And it's a messy process that adds up to something that works. And so I think for me, the most interesting thing is how is it possible that it could be so messy and still work? Not how is it that every ant knows exactly what to do all the time? That is, yeah, that's a great way of sort of thinking about it. So do you get like rebellious ants? Do you get ants that go against what, what you would expect that they would do? You don't get rebellious ants because I don't think that they're out for themselves to uh, pursue some goal of their own that's counter to the goal of the colony. But you definitely get incompetent ants. That is, uh, if you watch ants long enough, you're going to start wanting to help them because you think, oh, come on, let me, you know, you just have to get it from there to there. Um, so if you watch ants, you see that they go the wrong way and they drop things and they give up and um, they fail to find things that you think are right in front of them and they don't always do the right thing. So but it still works. Do you do most of your experiments? Are they just observational? Are they um, a lot, lots of hours put in watching how ants are running? We do experiments where we try to change something to see how the ants respond to that kind of change. And I like to work best in the field. I like, I prefer to do experiments in the field when possible. Mm -hmm. because then you can see how the ants react in the context of what they're normally doing. So the hard part about doing experiments is to find a way to intervene that's within the range of what could possibly happen mm -hmm. so that you are seeing how they respond to the changes that they normally meet. In the same way, if we decided to see how I respond to disturbance by blowing up my house, you know, that's a, an experience that I don't really have a good response to. <laughs> but if you wanted to see how I respond to disturbance when the kids make a mess or something happens that normally happens, um, then you would be more likely to see the real range of my behavior. And that's so, natural response. Yes. So um, we do experiments and we try to do experiments that reflect something that could happen normally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, another system that I work with is a species of arboreal ants that live in Mexico. So they live in the trees, they never come down, and they make an amazing network of trails in an existing network of vegetation, which is a tangle of branches and vines and um, all kinds of different plants that they move around in. Mm. In order to understand how they make those trail networks and how they maintain them, we do experiments where we just cut a piece of vine that they're walking on and look to see how they repair the trails. 
So that's the kind of thing that happens normally. The a lizard runs through and breaks a vine, or the wind, um, or the wind changes uh, which vine is connected to which branch. So we do experiments in which we create a perturbation that is on the magnitude. Uh, we do a perturbation that is of the same magnitude as something that would normally happen to them. And then we can see what kinds of responses they've evolved to deal with that kind of disturbance. It's, it's hard to understand what's happening just through observations. We do a lot of observations in order to figure out how to do experiments that will tell us more about what's happening. Mm. But if you just watch, it's sometimes hard to understand what they're responding to. So the use, so experiments are useful to try to learn what they're responding to and how they react. Right, right. And then you, you pick which variable you want to change so that you know what you want to learn. And then that's how you answer that question. I I was um I was born not long after the and quite near to where the BT researchers first did their first started thinking maybe we could use ants in Suffolk um in the 90s to to figure out the the sort of telephone network problems they were having and and I, when I saw that I was like no way that is so cool and that was quite long ago really and then I, I saw that you're looking at um at how it can teach us about the immune system which to me I was like okay telephone networks I can understand there's a certain as you were just saying about cutting cutting the vines there's a certain we need to connect um in a physical way but with the immune system is it is it a, a response thing again is it about um understanding how certain cells um act in response to to things happening in our body is that what you're learning there are a, a lot of interesting analogies between ant colonies and the immune system so one has to do with searching so some of the cells in the immune system have to search for pathogens and they do that through a network of um, capillaries and blood vessels so in mammals there are uh, centers of lymph nodes and they contain cells that have to go out and search for pathogens. And we've been looking at the analogies between how uh, uh, cells in the immune system search for pathogens and how ants search. So that's really a basic um, question about searching that has become very interesting in robotics because we also want to use robots to search, to do search and rescue in bad situations. So mm -hmm. um, uh, Melanie Moses and Stephanie Forrest and Judy Cannon um, have been working on questions about the immune system and analogies with ants, and I've been working with them. Another different kind of analogy has to do with the way that ant colonies deal with each other and the immune system deals with pathogens from the outside. So in both ant colonies and in the immune system, there's a distributed process that regulates how an ant decides that another ant is not a nest mate or how a cell 
decides that something is not a part of the body. So we've been looking at the analogies between nestmate recognition in ant colonies and the way that the immune system recognizes pathogens. It's well known in an ant colony that uh, ants of one colony will react to ants of another colony. And different species react differently. And even within the same species, you can have sometimes a much more aggressive response than other times. Ants are covered with a layer of grease uh, called cuticular hydrocarbons. And uh, the odors of one colony are different enough from the odors of another colony that the ants can use these odors to decide whether the other ant is a nestmate. Oh, wow. And well, one idea about how this works would be that every ant in the colony smells the same and it somehow knows how it smells. And then when it meets an ant of another colony, it says, you don't smell like us. Uh, we don't like you. You're not one of us. So it's kind of like a passport. Mm. Uh, when we try to understand how ants of one colony respond to another, the only kind of experiment we can do is to take ants from one colony and ants from another and put them in a dish and see if they fight. And if they do fight, we say, okay, they know they're not nestmates. But if they don't fight, we don't know if they didn't notice or they don't care. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And one of the problems with this idea that every colony has a colony specific odor and they recognize it is that we find that responses change over time. And when we actually extract those chemicals off the ant's body, we find that they change over time too. <laughs> so uh, working with Fernando Espunda, who is a computer scientist who had experience modeling the immune system, we came up with another way of thinking about it that really seems to fit better with what we know about how ants of one colony react to ants of another. Mm. And the, the idea is this, that each ant has a boundary in chemical space. When it encounters another ant, it decides, okay, if you smell like this on this side of the boundary, I accept you as a nestmate. If you smell like that, I don't. I identify you as not a nestmate. And that over time, that boundary changes with experience. So most they get better at recognizing. Well, they they ants when they are young tend to stay inside the nest, so they only ever meet ants that are of the same colony. Uh -huh. But when they are older and they start to go outside, that's when they're likely to meet ants of another colony. And we found in some experiments with harvester ants, and this was work by Shelby Sturgis, uh, who was a grad student, that ants that are only inside the nest, the younger ants that have never been outside, when you put them in a dish with ants from another colony, they're really not likely to fight. Mm -hmm. But if you take ants that have been outside and they have met ants of another colony, they're much more likely to recognize ants of another colony as not nestmates. Wow. And so that's consistent with the idea that over time, each ant changes its experience and it changes its recognition boundary so that over time, an ant becomes more likely to respond to the odor of an ant of another colony by identifying it as not a nestmate. 
And in that way, it's like the immune system. So um, we have uh, what's called innate immunity, but we also have acquired immunity. That's why vaccines work. Mm -hmm. So that if you are introduced to a pathogen, certain cells become tuned to that pathogen and they will recognize it as a pathogen. That is the point of a vaccine that you introduce those pathogens so that your immune system develops the cells that will recognize that pathogen. And so over time, your cells become more likely to recognize pathogens, not because every cell knows every pathogen, but there's more likely to be some cell that has met that pathogen before and will react to it. So in the same way, we think in an ant colony over time, well, over time, each ant becomes more likely to recognize pathogens so that in a mature colony, there are some ants at any time that will recognize some ants as non-nest mates. And that accounts for an interesting result um, that's well known in the literature that if you take ants from one colony and ants from another colony and you put them in a dish together, the, the larger your sample, the more likely they are to actually react. And we think that's because the more ants you take, the more likely you are to get some that will have developed a boundary that puts the ants of the, of the other species on the other side. So just as in the immune system, the more experience you have in the world of pathogens, um, the more likely you are to mount an immune response to a pathogen. That's why we're all waiting for the vaccine for COVID because we want our cells to have the response to COVID that would mount an immune response instead of getting sick. So right now, if we don't have the Right now, if we don't have the vaccine and we uh, haven't had it, then we're all susceptible to the infection mm. without mm. the immune response that would counter it. Mm. Yeah, our body doesn't know it, so yes. it, it will just let it right in. Yes. I mean, ants can teach us a lot about COVID response, though, I think, that they're quite, um, I mean, they, they make a lot of sacrifice for the good of the colony. Would you say that they're, they're, they're quite good at keeping disease out and pathogens out on, on behalf of the group as a whole? Well, I don't think that an ant um, experiences what it does as sacrifice, but, but ants can show us a lot about how uh, collective behavior changes the course of infection uh, because they change the way that they move around and which other ants they meet in response to infection, just as we have um, had to learn to make the collective decision to reduce our contact with other people to slow the spread of infection. Mm -hmm. Ants do that, I don't think, in a spirit of sacrifice, but that is part of how they respond. And it has the outcome that they can reduce their exposure to infection by limiting their contact with uh, dangerous uh, sources of infection. One thing that's always, I've always wanted to know about ants is how they communicate through their antennae. How, is it very similar to the way that they sense these, um, what did you call the, the coating that they had? Um, is it, is it a, a smelling sensation? 
Yes, ants smell with their antennae. And when one ant touches another ant with its antennae, it's smelling the uh, chemicals on the surface of the other ant. Okay. But ants also put out chemicals into the air. They're very volatile, so they evaporate quite quickly. If you've ever created an alarm and you see the ants running around disturbed, that's because some of them have put out a volatile chemical, an alarm pheromone, and they sense it with their antennae and they start running around. Some ants also put a chemical down on the ground where they walk, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. that's how they form trails. So one ant puts down a chemical. It's also a volatile chemical, so it evaporates. And if the next ant comes along before it has evaporated, then it's a little bit more likely to go that way. And so by doing that, they create trails. So it's it's almost like... shouting out a signal or or um something like that but with a chemical that you've tested you've tested that it's there and seen it uh i haven't tested it but i believe the work of others so (laughs) an ant has many glands Mm -hmm. and um most of the work on pheromones has been done by dissecting out the gland and um putting some of whatever is in the gland on the surface and looking to see how the ants react. With the hydrocarbons, we have tested that by extracting the hydrocarbons off the surface of the body. The cuticular hydrocarbons are not volatile. They don't evaporate in the air. It's like grease. So it doesn't um, spread an odor in the air. The ant has to get quite close to it. Uh But we've been able to extract that off the ants, and this is work I did uh, with Mike Green, um, and put the hydrocarbons on little glass beads and then introduce the beads, and the ants will respond to a little glass bead that has a certain smell that has this greasy stuff on it as if they were meeting another ant. So that's how we know that they use these hydrocarbons. And when they touch antennae or they touch each other's bodies with their antennae, they're smelling this greasy substance that's on the surface of the body of the ant. But most ants can't see. Most ants can't see. There are some species of ants that can see a little bit, Mm -hmm. but they operate almost exclusively by smell. So sometimes you'll see um, an ant in an unusual situation and it will raise its head and wave its antennae around so it's kind of like you cupping your ear or bringing up your binoculars you know it's trying to um, get more smell and um, another another endearing thing that ants do is they have a a brush on their sort of forearm Mm -hmm. and when things get to be too much they wipe off their antennae so you can sometimes see ants wiping off their antennae so if it gets coated with too much they um, they clean it off so that they can smell again. Oh, like rubbing our eyes, like, okay. Yes, that's okay. right. <laughs> exactly. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. I'm, I'm, I mean, we think it, in, it would be an in, inhibition having only one sense, but when it's that strong, that, uh, that sounds like a great, a powerful tool. I actually saw in, um, in the news while sort of looking up what's new in ants science um, before talking to you that they, um, some scientists have recently done work to find that um, ants will 
um, be able to sense pathogens and pesticides in soil and avoid those spaces whilst um, going to nest. So that sounds quite encouraging, right? Have, did you see that? See that? Yeah, I think that um, not all ants will be um, uh, not all ants will be able to avoid all pesticides, but some species seem to be good at that. I think leafcutter ants are very good at distinguishing toxins from, so leafcutter ants will avoid collecting plants or anything that's toxic to the fungus that they are feeding and that they eat. So leafcutter ants collect leaves and vegetation to feed a fungus, which they then eat. And they're able to avoid collecting something that's toxic to the fungus. So there is a process that isn't completely well understood. This is a work by Flavio Rosas, which I think is amazing, which is showing that ants that have collected a toxic substance one day that then is harmful to the fungus, then later will avoid collecting that. So there has to be some process that communicates uh, don't get this stuff. It's bad for us. I mean, they would be better than us at then looking after yes. what they depend on. <laughs> right. Well, um, we not only are um, not very good at avoiding toxic substances, we also are way too good at spreading them around. For real. Uh, for the real. ants aren't doing that. Yeah. The ants are not doing that. I mean, that sort of that relationship the leaf cutter ant has with this fungus i mean that that sounds incredible are there other ants that sort of are closely tied in with other species like that are so into there there are many amazing examples of evolved relationships between ants and plants and it's really over the 150 million years of ant evolution it was the diversifying of the flowering plants that led to this amazing diversity of ants. So ants have evolved in relation with plants and especially in the tropics, there are amazing relationships, uh, plants that feed the ants, but also create structures to house the ants so that the ants live in the plant and defend the plant from herbivores and in turn the plant feeds the ants <laughs> that and 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 there's another one the other way around right where there's a fungus that lays itself in ant brains is that is that that's is that right gruesome yes. thing that david attenborough showed us once on um planet earth planet yes earth. Ah! yeah <laughs> pops out of its head Yes, that's uh, David Hughes' work, yes. There is one question that I always ask that I always get just some really, I, answers that I can't even imagine, so I really want to ask you. If, if you were given um, half a million to, to look into any area that hasn't been touched yet in ant research, you can have as many um, grad students as you want um, to answer a question that you just, you can't even think how you would answer now what would you what would you want to know what's the burning question i think that we could learn a lot by asking the same kinds of dynamical questions about many different species so if i had unlimited resources i would 
try to look in the field at as many different kinds of species in different places as possible and try to ask the same basic questions about all of them. How is it that they respond to changing conditions and what are the rules for the local interactions that play out um, in response to the way their environment changes? So I guess I wouldn't do anything different that, from what I'm already doing, but with the resources I have can look carefully at a couple of species. But I think that it would be great if we were to look more broadly at the same kinds of questions in a much more diverse mm -hmm. range of species. And I think it would be great if we could go into the places where where uh, so many species are being lost and learn about what is going on before it's gone. So just to see across on a, on a global scale, how are ants responding to the Anthropocene? Yes. And what was your... Because that, well, because I think that the, the ants are going to show us many different ways of dealing with change because they have already evolved to fit their collective behavior to different kinds of environmental change in different habitats. So the desert and the tropical forest have very different kinds of stability, very different kinds of dynamics, and the ants have already evolved different ways of dealing with those kinds of regimes. And if we were able to look at a diversity of, of habitats carefully, we would see that the ants have already evolved ways of dealing with different kinds of change. And I think that would be a really interesting way to understand how collective behavior can deal with the kinds of substantial changes that we're facing now. And do you think it can teach us anything about the decisions that we need to make as humans, or are you thinking more in an ecological sense? I think it's already kind of obvious what decisions we have to make as humans, but yes, I think that um, we can learn about how, uh, we can learn from the ants how we can work collectively to solve problems. If you, what's your instinct about the different species and how they're handling things? Do you think uh, there are general patterns of ants in particular, different environments doing better than others? I think that we can already see patterns in the way that collective behavior has evolved to deal with different kinds of environments. And we can see that in the ants. I think we can see that in all kinds of natural systems, in, in different uh, cellular systems, in the way that different forms of neural activity are associated with different kinds of environmental change. That is, um, brains do different things for tasks that happen slowly and happen quickly. Um, and so I think that there are lots of ways that we see in nature that uh, collective behavior responds differently to different kinds of environmental conditions. Mm -hmm. The ants give us an opportunity to see that play out in a form that we can observe really easily. Mm. But I think that we see that throughout nature. Mm. And the ways that um, ecological systems are responding to climate change 
are give us examples of uh, collective behavior responding to massive disturbance on a much larger scale. So I think that we will see the same kinds of patterns on different scales and that uh, the ants are a, a tractable layer in between uh, very tiny things and huge ecosystems where it's possible to look at how collective behavior responds to changing environments. Well, it certainly would be a, a very interesting and invaluable uh, extra piece of information to have about what's to come and what what we can do when things change and as the climate changes and stuff. I wish I wish I could give you the resources to do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That'd be great. <laughs> um I think that's great. Uh, thank you so much for for that. Um I learned a lot. I found that very, very interesting. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. It's great to talk to you. Have a great rest of your day. Okay, you too. Bye. See you.